Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week we have a pair of tales for you. First, a demon plagues a forest village, taking lambs and calves in exchange for peace. But what will the demon take when they have no more lambs to give? Then a widower moves into a crumbling seaside manor, only to find himself at war with its inhabitants. Our first story for the evening comes from Nick Petru. Nick Petru works as a copywriter out of Fremantle, Western Australia, where he likes to read unsettling fiction and complain about the sun. His short fiction has been, or will be, published by Pseudopod, The Arcanist, Ghost Orchid Press, and others, and he reads for Ethereum Magazine. You can reach out to him on Twitter at NSPetru. Children of the Night, join me for Nick Petru's Offering, a Tales to Terrify original.
Salmon side-saddled upon his headless, hundred-legged horse to where Agatha knelt beside her husband outside the church. A sick yellow sky loomed behind the rain clouds, and the stench of brimstone spoiled the air. Sweat stood on Agatha's brow. Careful to avoid Salmon's gaze, she raised the lamb. The horse crouched and Salmon's robe pooled on the earth like blood. He took the bleeding lamb by its hind legs, unhinged his jaw to reveal a throat crammed with coal-black teeth, and lowered the lamb in whole. Salmon's mouth smacked shut. His horse's hundred hooves drummed, kicking up mud and carrying him to the next pair of villagers in the circle. Agatha let out her breath and wrapped her arms around her belly. Her husband, Edmund, held her against his chest. When no lamb nor calf remained, Salmon rode around an invisible corner and vanished from sight, almost as if he had passed behind a frameless mirror. The dogs came out of hiding, and the villagers said not a word as they shuffled to their homes of rotten wattle and crumbling daub. Agatha broke Edmund's embrace to catch the priest before he could retreat into the church. The sickle of the god-queen Brea had not graced the church's gable in twenty years, nor had the priest let anyone inside. This at Salmon's behest. Father, Agatha seized the old priest's hands. What will the fiend take when we have no more lambs to give? Salmon comes only with each solstice. We will manage. The priest jerked free of Agatha's grip. He stepped inside and began to close the door but met her boot. There must be something about banishing devils in the scripture, she said. Surely a copy remains. The clouds broke. Steam rose from the earth, blurring the fields and the dark trees beyond them. It's safer if we just give him what he wants. Please, Agatha. She removed her boot from the doorway. The door slammed shut. Rot blackened the summer crops. Wolves took two lambs and three calves. Despite her growing belly, Agatha planted peas and garlic and salted the sick pig her husband had butchered. She cut hair and shaved ragged beards. She amputated several villagers' infected fingers and toes and one man's leg with her sickle-shaped knife. Edmund said if Agatha bore a boy, the boy would take his name, while a girl they would name after his mother, who had lived and died here as her mother before her. He would not abandon their home. When the last leaves fell from the trees and the dogs began to tuck their tails and nip at friendly hands, Salmon returned to the forefront of Agatha's mind. She lay facing away from Edmund in bed, wind whistling through the timbers. Her back ached, and while she'd just relieved herself, she needed to again. As she exited the outhouse, an orange bolt took a mountain path through the clouds, and the church stood as if in day. Thunder groaned. A window shutter bounced against the stone flank of the church. Her child pushed and turned. Iron, the fire-blackened copy of the scripture that Agatha had stolen from the church, claimed iron would harm the fiend. On the eve of winter solstice, she blunted a dozen nails, disabled Edmund with wine, and fastened a lamb to her operating table. While the lamb seemed hardly to notice her razor's bite, 
Its eyes rolled with every nail she lodged beneath its skin. The villagers knelt in a circle before the church. Clouds ill with brimstone stained the snowflakes yellow. The wind had thinned and died. Agatha held the lamb against her breast, snuffing its cries with her palm, her heart almost matching the lamb's in pace. Edmund knelt green-faced beside her. Salmon steamed. Tiny faces howled silently beneath the surface of his onyx crown. His headless horse carried him across the circle to a family of three. A withered hand reached through a wound in his robe. Gray lips parted and a tunnel yawned, swallowing the proffered calf. The other animals bleated and mewled. Salmon's eyes snapped to Agatha's. A red inferno raged through her mind, flaying loved ones and ashing the world. With a gasp, she turned away. When she opened her eyes, Salmon's robe pooled on the earth before her. His exhalation singed her hair. Edmund nudged Agatha with his elbow. Trembling, she raised the lamb. Salmon held the lamb over his throat as if over a well. Agatha met his gaze once again. She clenched her fists and endured the infernal visions thrust upon her. The lamb vanished behind the well wall, and the demon began across the circle to claim his next morsel. In the center, he stopped. He listed towards his horse's rear as if he were drunk. The horse trampled and leaned, trying to right him. His leather face crumpled and his onyx crown cracked. Wailing souls shot into the sky. His robe bled from his shoulders and down his horse's flanks. Agatha's blood carried lightning. She stood with her amputation knife to finish the job. Three strides into her snarling advance, Salmon spun to face her. He kicked his horse and charged, crying ribbons of blood. Agatha held course. A beam of sunlight pierced the clouds and glanced off her blade. She swept it at the demon but met only air. He had veered at the last moment, vanishing around an invisible corner and catching his crown on the edge. The crown fell to the mud. One final thread of souls wailed free. Then silence. Agatha wiped Salmon's blood from her brow. A contraction buckled her, and she dropped her knife blade first into a bloody hoof puddle. The priest looked at Agatha, then the church's empty gable, then again at Agatha. He limped into the circle and fed his arm around her back to prop her up. Don't just stand there, Edmund, he hissed. Let's get her inside. The demon blood touching Agatha's knife boiled away. That was Nick Petru's Offering, as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and voice actor. She performs for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, 
such as the No Sleep podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. Thank you, Nicole. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second tale tonight comes from Avra Margariti. Avra Margariti is a queer author, Greek sea monster, and Riesling-nominated poet with a fondness for the dark and the darling. Avra's work haunts publications such as Vastarian, Asimov's, Liminality, Arsenica, The Future Fire, Space and Time, Eye to the Telescope, and Glittership. The Saint of Witches, Avra's debut collection of horror poetry, is available from Weasel Press. You can find Avra on Twitter at Avra Margariti. Listen with me, children of the night, to Avra Margariti's Thus He Descended, a Tales to Terrify original. Today, like every other day, Len goes to war with his ghosts. Careful now, he thinks, as he inches down the staircase, doused in grim dawn light. Like most things in Seapoint Mansion, the staircase remains grand and imposing, even after succumbing to time's ruin. In another life, Len might have descended the marble steps in his finery, drifting along a stream of string music as his guests raised champagne flutes to their gracious host. Yesterday, he tumbled down the last bend, 
each step digging into his bruised spine. His eyes were veiled by a chilling, dark mist, his legs tangled with ghostly limbs. The fall had lasted forever. He's still tender all over, even after swallowing several bitter spoonfuls of laudanum. He knows he should consider himself lucky he didn't break any bones this time. But in truth, he wouldn't have minded. Bones once broken meant stronger afterwards. He needs to be strong, if he is to keep fighting. Len's breakfast is more laudanum than tea. A house this size would normally have at least one maid, butler, and cook employed full-time, but he is alone here. Him and the ghosts. They crowd around the vast emptiness of the dining room, flattening themselves against the ceiling moldings and frescoed walls, hanging from the massive chandelier. If he flicks his tongue out, he can almost taste their potent mix of glee and dread. It's his move now, and the ghosts cannot wait to see what new rule or weapon he will introduce to their game. He smiles, almost, arranging the tea service and medicine bottle on a cart. Len leaves the dining room. The tea cart's squeaking wheels cannot cover the sound of murmuring ghosts. There, if you know where to look, how to listen. Standing in the middle of the great hall, the staircase in sight, the carpet still rumpled where his body had landed. Len pours himself another cup of tea with a flourish. He takes a tiny sip, hot, but not scalding. Not that it makes a difference. The ghosts draw nearer, and as they do, the shadows on the wall lengthen, large as monsters no longer contained under beds or inside closets. He dips his finger into the brownish liquid, then flicks the drops in the direction of the nearest cluster. Sick, treacly pleasure flares in his chest upon hearing the shadows hiss and sizzle. Enough holy water, even adulterated with tea leaves, can banish ghosts and other malevolent spirits. But Len's goal is to hurt, not expel. Not yet. He takes a spare vial of holy water out of his silk robe's pocket and empties it over his own head, just to prove to himself that he can, that he's not one of the damned. He shakes out his long hair and the ghosts screech and hide up the chimney and inside dusty alcoves to escape the runoff holiness. Payback will be swift and cruel once the ghosts lick their wounds and regroup. Len's skin prickles with fear and anticipation of his own. He goes upstairs to sleep his soreness off while he still can. The sea below his window is angry, its menace reverberating throughout the house's skeleton. This is his life, for as long as he has left. The locals think he is a horror writer of Penny Dreadfuls. Why else would a young man live all alone in a dreary, rickety mansion at the top of a sea-corroded cliff? It's almost a month before the first invitation to tea arrives. The ghosts are much older than that. They didn't come with the house. No, Len brought them with him, clinging to the roots of his hair and the pores of his skin. He and the ghosts have belonged to one another for quite a while, in fact. But this kind of haunting, the one the game relies on, needed to take place in a more suitable environment. Thus came the move into the clifftop mansion by the Savage Sea. Mrs. and Mrs. Hastings invite you to tea and conversation, 4 p.m. sharp reads the cream-papered letter. The black-purple ink of the flowery penmanship matches Len's bruises, new and old, appearing on his skin faster than they can heal. 
he should write back and decline. Or, better yet, stand the Hastings up to ensure no more invitations come his way. The ghosts don't like it when he leaves them, not even to pick up the groceries delivered once a week to the Black Iron Gates. Perhaps it is the appeal of further angering the ghosts that has Len putting on a moth-eaten velvet ascot and running a comb through his long tresses a little before the grandfather clock strikes three. Presumably, at least, the ghosts are known to manipulate time in order to mess with his mind. The two Mrs. Hastings, sisters or wives, he wonders to himself idly enough to know he won't care to ask for clarification, live down his cliff in a townhouse just outside the village proper. Without a coach or horse, the walk takes Len nearly thirty minutes. He keeps his back to the sea, refusing to look at the low-thrumming threat of it, although he can do nothing about the taste of salt sickly permeating the breeze. He's itchy with sweat and irritation by the time the Hastings butler opens the door and raises an eyebrow at his unkempt appearance. Elizabeth and Clara Hastings will see you in the parlor, the butler says with a voice full of thinly veiled distaste. Len doesn't bother with pleasantries. He sweeps into the parlor, long hair and cloak trailing behind him. However, the room gives him pause. It looks less like a tea parlor and more like a library, with laden shelves stretching wall to wall and floor to ceiling. You must be the gargoyle man hidden away in Seapoint Mansion, the one named Elizabeth says, extending a gloved hand to be kissed. An impish gleam resides in her eyes, undaunted by his lack of laughter at her jest. The other woman, Clara, dressed in creams as opposed to Elizabeth's greys, takes Len in through a softer, more caring gaze. He resists squirming and checking that the ascot conceals the fresh cuts on his throat. The ghost spooked him while he was attempting to shave earlier. The razor didn't sink deep enough in his papery skin to warrant Clara's concern. Didn't you say you live alone in that big old house, Mr. Len? Clara inquires while Elizabeth dismisses her servants and pours their tea herself. This time he does laugh, a wry thing in the back of his throat. His injuries aren't as simple as to have been man-made. Not the result of a bad marriage, as Clara's earnest eyes seem to be implying. At least, not a direct result, his traitorous mind supplies. What I said was, I have no spouse, madam. The tea is strong and sweet the scones fresh and flaky, yet Len can't settle down in his wingback chair and enjoy them. It's not the various ails of his body that prevent him, nor the way the squeaky leather sticks to his scraped skin. His eyes cast furtive glances around the library, with all its gilded, ancient tomes in dark corners trying to catch a shadow of a ghost. His own, or perhaps the two women's, once, Len couldn't see the things that haunted other people, but libraries are known to hold many a spirit, and lately he's become more accustomed to ghosts than people. Clara and I love stories, as you can see for yourself. Elizabeth's voice brings him out of his reverie. She gestures around the room of old parchment and wax. Her smile is soft with affection, and so is Clara's. Here are two people who look like they have laid down their arms and made peace with their ghosts. The notion makes Len's skin tighten and prickle against his bones. He doesn't think he could keep going without the ghosts lending him their spite, feeding his own restless wrath in turn. We do indeed, Clara serenely replies. Perhaps you could spin a tale for us. Rumor has it you're a writer. 
Although there is no truth to the rumors, one story in particular has made its perennial home inside Len's head. It's been playing out day and night, when the ocean is a roar or a murmur, ever since that first fight he waged against the ghosts. Once upon a time, there lived a fair son of a noble couple and the scrappy son of the estate hunters, who worked as a servant boy. Growing up together, the two children wrestled each other in the gardens and came up with all sorts of games and mischief around the many halls and chambers. Eventually, they fell in love. The servant boy's parents cautioned him against upsetting the order of things and their family's dependence upon the nobility. Meanwhile, the noble's boy's parents wanted him to marry rich and refused to bless the young men's union. And so the nobleman and the servant eloped. They exchanged clandestine vows in a small chapel, then returned home with matching rings glinting on their fingers. When their parents threatened to find a way to separate them, they packed all their belongings and stole a two-horse carriage, galloping toward a new place they could call their home. A storm rolled off the mountains, down at the straining sea. The nobleman was a skilled driver, but even he could do nothing as he lost control of the panicked horse's reins, whilst lightning struck and thunder rumbled through the steep mountain turns. The salt-fused wind wrenched the carriage door open, throwing the servant into a row of thorny shrubs. Trapped there between the brambles, head bleeding, arm twisted, he could do nothing but watch as the horses slipped on the rain-slick path. The carriage, together with his new husband, plunged into the sea below and crashed against the jagged rocks. Alone, widowed, injured, the former servant wove in and out of consciousness for hours as the rain pummeled the earth. The phantom whinny of horses and the dead nobleman howling Len's name echoed between gusts of wind. When the sky eventually stitched itself back together and the storm eased into a light drizzle, that's when the first starving ghosts arrived. He forgets whose move it is. Then again, this has never been about fairness or keeping score. Not a chess game like it used to be, but an all-out war now. The ghosts are quiet as Len gets himself ready for bed, but not for long. He's accepted another invitation to tea with the Hastings later this week, if only for the opportunity of exploring their library. Len is certain he saw some books in the occult piled on oaken shelves. He wouldn't mind doing his research in order to find more creative ways to get back at his ghosts. Clara hugged him before he left her in Elizabeth's townhouse. She whispered, breath tear wet in his ear, What happened in the mountains wasn't your fault. Love is never to blame. He wishes the ghosts would make a move sooner rather than later. It would help him forget the gentleness of Clara's hands, Elizabeth's eyes. The sea down below his bedroom window is vocal enough, even if the rest of the ghosts, so much weaker and dimmer than what lies beneath the clifftop mansion, are silent for now. Not yet. Len chants like a lullaby born mostly out of habit. Not yet. It's far too early still to enter the final battle. He falls asleep to the howling of the sea. Waves crash on rocks as if wanting to climb up the craggy cliffside with monstrous teeth and talons, and tear the whole mansion down until it's nothing but a wreck at the bottom of the sea. In his dreams, the waves become a distant siren song calling his name. When the cold wind hits him like a punch to the gut, Len isn't worried. The ghosts aren't above trying to chill him with broken windows and lost blankets. The taste of salt, however, is overwhelming. 
his eyes fly open, only to squint closed again, stung by grit and sea spray. Len is outside, sleepwalking again, each of his steps powered by the pushing and prodding of nettle-sharp shadows. The ghosts have never managed to possess him before. He suspects he has the Hastings and their unexpected kindness to blame for lowering his defenses. Len stands facing the edge of the cliff, Seapoint Mansion perched behind him like a bird of prey. The fall down to the darkened water is a long one, but not mighty enough to kill. Although he's managed to shake the ghost's influence off, his bare toes still curl over the cliff edge, his eyes trained on the waves below. The water is an angry blue mauve, like ink left to dry in its inkwell. The cliff shakes with the ocean's rage, and Len shakes with it. He tries to identify a specific movement in the eddies of water, that of the biggest ghost to have followed him here, this time through water rather than air. Not yet. Not yet, he thinks again, that familiar, perfunctory lullaby. But why not? He's tired of dealing with the small fish when he has a leviathan at his feet. If Len is going to do this, it might as well be on his own terms. He's painfully awake and sober now that the rest of his small, familiar ghosts have dispersed. Entirely himself when he steps over the cliff edge, when he lets his body fall. The Leviathan welcomes him with the tender impatience of someone who has been waiting for a long time. Len, the sea bubbles and whistles. It's like the ghost's whispers, only he can hear it with his mind as well as his ears. After all, the Leviathan is the father of all of Len's ghosts. Michael? Len's voice breaks thanks to the shock of the fall in the freezing water. He smiles. His husband always liked him a bit broken. You've kept me waiting, the Michael Leviathan hisses. His giant oceanic body circles Len's shivering form with the formidable grace of an eel or a shark. Scales and spines cover his fractured skin like an armor, barnacles and seaweed tarnishing his moonlit shine. I knew you wouldn't be able to resist the game we've always played. Len has enough time to draw in a mouthful of air before he's being pulled under the dark waves. Murky water veils his eyes. His chest burns, his body battered by the leviathan's spiky tail. His lungs fill with salt and spite. It feels like coming home. Grabbing hold of the leviathan's tail, Len wrestles with him, kicking and clawing until his head breaks the water's surface and his throat rasps with each inhale and exhale. Is this how you greet your beloved husband? Len asks around the mad grin, stretching his face. The leviathan bares his teeth in response. There's just enough starlight above to glint off that toothy smile. Charming, even in the dirty depths of the sea. You ruined me. The leviathan who was once a nobleman howls with wind and wave and menace. Len scoffs, despite the chattering of his teeth, the numbness of his body. You knew the rules. It wasn't my fault. Yes, Michael agrees. You never meant to kill me. Just damage me a bit. The leviathan pulls Len under again, all the way down until the sea floor digs into his shoulder blades. His husband's face is so close, Len can make out every broken detail, even through the murk and salt haze, all his beautiful, regal features distorted, transformed. 
If this was a horror novel, like the ones Hastings' sisters or wives believe he pens up in the mansion, the Leviathan would be the final beast to beat. Before, the game had never been about winning. He had no desire to rid himself of his ghosts, because the war wasn't meant to have an end in sight. But perhaps the rules are different now that the air runs out of Len's lungs. He has to make his final move now, or else he'll never have another chance at checkmate. Len doesn't know how to sanctify the sea and watch its holiness burn his own private ghosts to nothingness. The ghosts are a manifestation of guilt, but not remorse. He is aware of this, and Michael, the only one who ever saw through Len's many-layered veneer, is too. Len has always liked to cling to his fictions, but perhaps some modicum of truth is required in an exorcism. He flails free of the Leviathan's clawed grip, then swims to the surface once more, each move erratic and uncoordinated. The continued lack of oxygen has left him lightheaded, seeing more stars than there are in the sky. He breathes again. Len breathes, and he speaks the words of truth he hopes will put an inglorious end to his particular haunting. The Leviathan shrieks and writhes before sinking like a stone. This isn't the first time Len has watched his husband drown, but, with some luck, it will be the last. They aren't here. Even as he opens his eyes to an unfamiliar room, even as the ceiling spins in time to the throbbing of his head, Len knows this. The ghosts aren't here. Easy now, a voice says from his bedside. Clara Hastings' heart-shaped face swims into his vision, her thin brow creased in concern. You hit your head on those infernal rocks. You had better not move any more than necessary. Len pieces the story together fragment by fragment. A couple of fishermen rowing out at dawn, spotting his body half-buried in the shallows. The whole town gathering to watch his limp and unconscious body being carried up the cliff. Elizabeth and Clara taking him home to one of their many guest rooms calling for the local doctor to examine his waterlogged chest and bandage the ugly gash on his forehead. Clara is content to sit by Len's bedside with a book, helping him up now and then for some fresh tea mixed with laudanum. She clicks her tongue, frets, and fluffs his down pillows. Elizabeth is more aloof. She paces the corridor outside the guest room, shooting helpless looks at Clara that go largely unanswered. Her eyes bore into Len's bruised form, as if that clever glint can cast him in truth's light. What happened out there? Len feigns temporary amnesia of the last 24 hours. It's easier that way for everyone involved. Elizabeth doesn't seem convinced, but once she stormed off elsewhere in the house, Clara leans in conspiratorially and pats his sore shoulder. I understand, she says, eyes blue and brimming. You poor soul. I bet you wanted to feel closer to your late husband. Said husband remains silent, as does the sea outside at night. Was freedom really so easy that Len could have achieved it all along? You need to think about the future, Elizabeth says on the rare occasion she keeps Len company. Staying all alone in that crumbling mansion can't be good for you. Perhaps there's something to be said for starting over and building the foundations of a new life far from here. Not in a mansion serving as ripe ground for hauntings, but... Somewhere different. A whitewashed cottage in a charming village. A city flat overlooking a busy street market. Places where ghosts would never dare tread. When he's feeling well enough, he moves to the tea parlor doubling as a library. 
Ensconced in an overstuffed armchair, he lets Clara read to him from her and Elizabeth's vast collection. Len's mind wanders without his consent across familiar paths. Playing the game with Clara would pose no challenge, therefore offer no reward. Elizabeth's shrewd mind would make her a much better opponent, but he knows she would never agree to it. Perhaps he should have asked earlier whether the Hastings are lovers or relatives, but it's too late now to matter in the grand scheme of things. Clara's stories trickle through his mind like syrup. Tales of epic quests and heroic feats. Through his opium haze, however, all he can hear is his own story. The truth that vanquished Michael and sank his leviathan body to the bottom of the sea. The truth he will once again pretend to forget. And soon. But for now, Len lets himself remember. Once upon a time, a young nobleman and a servant boy, who had been playing a game of their own devising since they were children, stole a carriage and eloped where nobody knew them. The game started innocently enough. Not a real war back then, but one of wooden swords meeting soft flesh and matches snuffed out between boyish fingers. I dare you to touch the flame, no, I dare you to swallow it. With every escalation, each one more destructive than the last, two sets of parents worried about what their sons were doing to each other in the name of love. When the nobleman and the servant announced their secret marriage, their parents made their displeasure known and swore to separate them before tragedy found them. Thus the stolen carriage dashed through the mountain paths, and thus came the storm. The former servant felt giddy, biting the insides of his cheeks until they bled. He used to get a similar feeling whenever he prepared the hounds for a hunt. Yesterday, during the wedding ceremony, the nobleman had made him stand in the biting wind and numbing cold in only a lace veil and recite his vows without his voice succumbing to shivers. Which meant that, today, in the two-horse carriage, it was the former servant's turn to pick a weapon and a set of rules. His move. He opened the door of the moving carriage and climbed under the driver's seat next to his new husband. He bent down near his husband's ear so he would be heard over the howling of the wind and the horse's nervous whinnies, and he whispered, Let go of the reins and trust me to pick them back up when the time is right. The roads are too steep and slippery, the nobleman replied through teeth clenched in concentration. It's dangerous. The former servant smiled. He could taste the lightning in the air, the thunder rumbling through his bones, and his arteries alight with liquid fire. Are you conceding, then? You know what you need to say to make it stop. The nobleman laughed. They both knew he would rather die than surrender. It was another thing they had in common. What drew them together in the first place? Of course not. He let go of the reins. The horses kept galloping forward without guidance, blinded by rain and fear, when a sharp, fog-shrouded bend appeared on the road before them. The former servant reached over to grab hold of the reins and regain control of the horses and carriage, but before his gloved hands could close around the reins, the carriage's front wheels hit a rock embedded in the uneven path. He was catapulted off the driver's seat, landing in a blackberry bush at the edge of the road. The bush trapped him, but it also kept him from falling over. The carriage and horses skidding down the mountainside pierced his eardrums. So did the nobleman's voice, calling out his name, and the feelings that stirred inside him. Were they panic or relief? The former servant stood on unsteady, thorn-torn legs. He peered over the edge, down at the raging sea, where his husband's broken body drowned, where his drowned body broke itself apart against the rocky shore. 
and in its image, through the formal nobleman's sea-froth spite, something else was remade, something other. Len ties his hair back with a velvet ribbon and dons his best coat and ascot. He carries his chests and suitcases down the grand staircase, and no shadow reaches out to trip him and watch him fall. No gleeful laughter echoes. A carriage will arrive any minute now to drive him away from Seapoint Mansion for good. Last night he slept in his old bed for the last time, plagued by fits of wakefulness. The murmurs of the sea were too soft to be anything but wishful thinking on his part. The game, the war, was never about winning or losing. It was about playing. Michael understood this better than anyone. He is quiet now, sleeping at last. The ghosts are, too. Len fixes himself one last cup of tea and drums his fingers against the chipped rim, thinking of holy water and hissing shadows. Len greets the coachman with a grunt as he climbs inside the carriage that will drive him out of town. He keeps the curtains drawn tight and leans against the covered window in an attempt to get comfortable. The paved town roads have given way to packed dirt countryside when his long hair comes undone from its knot. He yelps when he feels a pull at his scalp, sharp enough to dislodge a few hairs from their follicles and aggravate his wound still healing from the fall, jump, off the seapoint cliffs. The cut grows sticky with new blood under the layers of bandage. Len reaches up to his temple and pinches the offender between thumb and forefinger. The ghost is nothing but a puny, wiggling shadow. But, because it's gotten a taste of his blood... In now has the potential to grow and multiply, and always thirst for more. Cradling the small, spiteful ghost between his palms, Len throws his aching head back and laughs in delight. Well, he thinks, and so the game begins anew. That was Avra Margarides' Thus He Descended, as read by Dennis Robinson. Dennis is a fellow content creator from the haunted small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. When he's not consulting by day, he is one of the creators behind the comedy podcast Botched, a D&D podcast. Found on all of your podcatchers, it's not your average D&D podcast, as they focus more on banter, character interaction, and improv comedy instead of the rules. They even had an H.P. Lovecraft-themed campaign set in 1932 New York City. You can watch their show live or catch up over at twitch.tv slash botchedpodcast. As well as being one of the creators behind Botched, Dennis is also the mastermind behind a graphic novel about the world's first werewolf. A little mythology a dash of folklore, a sprinkling of history. He brings you Lycan, Solomon's Odyssey. Chapter 2 is out now, and the third is in the works. If you could check out the project, it would mean the world to him. You can find it now at HiveheadStudios.com or LycanBook.com. Make sure you check it out. Thank you, Dennis. Well, children of the night, 
the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we clean the blood from ragged nails with more Tales to Terrify.